You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, So, Mary, looks like we've finally evened the score. All right, this is going to take a minute, but bear with me. It'll be worth it. I promise. Bartolo Longo was born into an Italian Catholic family in 1841. His parents were devout Catholics, and so was Bartolo until he went to college. At college, he fell in with a bad crowd, as one does, but in his case, Bartolo fell in with a group of mediums and spiritualists who claimed they could communicate with the dead, and he eventually wound up in a satanic cult, as one does, and was ordained a satanic priest. But it didn't stick. Bartolo was anxious and depressed, and a friend convinced him to talk to a priest, a Catholic priest, not a satanic priest. And after listening to this priest natter on for three weeks, Bartolo cracked. He renounced Satanism and embraced Catholicism or re-embraced Catholicism. And he's now a saint, a junior saint beatified by Pope John Paul II. That was the Pope who thought God would send adults who had consensual gay sex to hell while he sent priests who'd raped kids on to new parishes. Anyway, Bartolo took the name Rosario because he was very into the rosary when he joined the Dominican order, making him the third most famous Rosario in history after Rosario Dawson, the actress, loved her in top five, looking forward to seeing her in Clerks 3, and Rosario Gambino of the Gambino crime family. You may be wondering why I know so much about this guy and why I am bothering you with this this morning. Well, Bartolo is the patron saint of the anxious and the depressed. So if the meds aren't working, you can try praying to Bartolo Longo. That's how it works for us Catholics. God does hear our prayers, but God is a busy guy. And so you have to ingratiate yourself with saints in hopes that they will intercede for you with God, put in a good word about you with God, and then your prayers will be answered. It works every time, except for all the times it doesn't work, which is most of the time. But that's not why I'm bothering you with this. And it doesn't work. Please don't go off your meds and start praying to Bartolo Longo. Don't do that. I know about this guy because of the date he joined the Dominicans and changed his name to Rosario, the date he took vows and took holy orders, October 7th, 1981. 98 years later, on October 7th, 1964, I was born in a Catholic hospital on the north side of Chicago. Coincidence? Not according to Mary. Not according to the person who has been blowing up my inbox with emails about Bartolo Longo for 15 years. According to my pen pal Mary, who may be a listener, this October 7th business is not a coincidence. Bartolo taking holy orders on the same day I was born, a century later, it is a sign, a sign from God that I am destined to return to the Catholic faith, a sign that I will one day divorce my husband, renounce my sin, put down the dick, and live a chaste life like Bartolo did. Another event of world historical proportions that happened on October 7th? In 1982, on October 7th, Cats opened on Broadway. So my thing for lycra cat suits and butt plugs with tails, coincidence or ordained by God? Anyway, I was thinking about Bartolo Rosario Longo this weekend, the Catholic saint who renounced Satanism. After reading about Xavier Novel Goma, the Catholic bishop who left the priesthood to run off with a Satanist in Barcelona. Well, 
that's a bit of an overstatement. Goma resigned to live in sin, to cohabitate with a lady shrink who writes erotica with satanic themes. She's divorced. They're living together. They aren't married. He's blowing loads. She's cranking out dirty devil novels. But Goma wasn't just any Catholic bishop. He was a high-profile supporter of conversion therapy for the gays and performed exorcisms to drive out those gay demons. Because the devil is real and demons are real, but gay people are faking it. So I wrote to my friend Mary on Sunday just to let her know that we've evened the score. You got Bartolo Rosario Longo. We got Bishop Xavier Goma. For now, he could return to the fold, return to the faith. But at the moment, the former bishop is looking for a job in Barcelona as an agronomist, which is a whole hell of a lot more useful to society than an exorcist. Also, the world is on fire. Democracy is in peril. People are losing their minds. Please do what makes you happy. Want to be a Dominican? Fine with me. Want to run off with a woman who writes satanic pornography? Sounds good. So long as what makes you happy isn't setting fires, attacking democracy, or blowing up at people on airplanes or in supermarkets, have at. All right. Coming up on today's show on the Magnum, Amanda Montel, author of Cultish, the language of fanaticism and co-host of the sounds like a cult podcast joins me to talk about cults and how they use language to control their followers. That's on the Magnum that you can subscribe to at savage.love the Magnum Savage Lovecast twice as long more guests, no ads go to savage.love to subscribe. And my new book Savage Love from A to Z comes out in two weeks and listeners in Seattle and Portland. I am hosting book launch events in the coming weeks. I'll be at Town Hall in Seattle on Friday, September 24th. Bill Radke from KUOW, our local NPR station, will be interviewing me on stage about what I've learned over 30 years writing Savage Love. And I'll be at Mississippi Studios in Portland on Saturday, October 2nd. Get your tickets now at savage.love slash events. A copy of the book is included in the price of admission. All right, let's get to the show. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I've got a quarantine success story coming to you from Southeast Asia. So what I'm sharing is something I call the kink clock. Basically, uh, I have a play partner that I met with regularly, but of course, during the pandemic, often for weeks, we couldn't see each other. And so we wanted some way to feel connected across that time. And so we came up with kind of like a minute hand and an hour hand to uh to stay connected she really loves impact play she likes to be spanked she likes a belt she likes uh all kinds of implements and so she started challenging me to try to leave marks that would last for days or even weeks and uh that created a situation where like when we weren't together, she would send me some photos as things faded away and she would say, look at, I can still see where you were. And it also gave me a chance to go uh, shopping in like a kitchen supply store and kind of think like, oh, I wonder what this would be like. So it, it kept us connected when we couldn't physically see each other. And then uh, those marks did fade, but something else would grow in and that was her hair because I learned that she had... Uh, been shaving herself since she had reached puberty. And so as part of the kink clock, I challenged her not to shave and to let her hair grow in. And then every time I saw her, there was this built-in moment of reconnecting and grooming her. And I took her through all the old crazy hairstyles I remembered from 
uh, porn growing up. And that was actually a lot of fun. And so it made it so that uh, even if we hadn't seen each other for three or four weeks, uh, when we got back together, there would be something built in, the chance to kind of slow down and reconnect and pay attention to each other. So that's how we've had some kinky fun during this uh, crazy time of the pandemic and the lockdown. Thank you for calling and sharing. And I'm going to spend the rest of the day imagining you giving your play partner's pubes a perm or a Princess Diana Bob or a Dorothy Hamill wedge. We like to start every week's show with a really interesting success story. That one counts. Thank you, caller. If you have a sex success story you'd like to share and you'd like us to open next week's Savage Lovecast with that success story, with your success story, give us a buzz. Hey, Dan. Forgive me if this is a question that you've uh, fielded, a lot, fielded a lot lately. I'm, I'm sure it's a problem that a lot of people are having, but I'm, a vac- I'm fully vaccinated and I'm proud, might I add. I believe all the science and everything. Unfortunately, a lot of my friends, very close, close friends and, and people I meet do not feel the same. And then I met and slept with my extraordinarily hot neighbor. And then I found out he wasn't vaccinated. Of course, after the deed was done. And of course, he's like one of the hottest people I've ever had the pleasure of hooking up with and spending time with. And he's wonderful in almost every other way. Except he's not fucking vaccinated. And I've tried speaking to him about it. I've gone round and round about it. I think I might be making like a little progress with him with it. But at the end of the day, as great as he is, I shouldn't be sharing my exquisite pussy with someone who isn't vaccinated and has like a fake fucking vaccination card. I mean, it infuriates me. And it is it is hard because I don't know if this is a line that I should draw with him and with other people, but I I feel like I'm going to have to. But at the same time, a lot of people are unvaccinated. How do you feel this sort of problem? And, you know, how do you tell people, I'm not going to fuck you if you're not vaccinated? Like, it's them them fighting words in this time, I think, but I want to, I want to, you know, put my pussy where my mouth is, if you know what I mean. Dan would take one look at that fake vaccination card that he's been using to get into places that are trying to keep people safe by making them for vaccinated folks only. I would take one look at that fake vaccination card and pull up my pants and take my exquisite pussy and get the fuck out of there. What that fake vaccination card says is he is willing for his own selfish, short-sighted, idiotic reasons to put other people's health in danger to risk other people's lives. If that's the way he'll treat people, I don't know, at a concert or a restaurant, at some public space where they're trying to keep everybody safe by requiring vaccinations, and he's willing to risk his own life and the lives of other people, that's a guy who isn't above taking a condom off in the middle of a fuck for his own short-sighted reason, for his own pleasure. So yeah, Take your pussy and go and tell him why he is no longer going to have access to your pussy. And you are allowed to discriminate against people who are being idiotic in this way. And with so many other people out there who are unvaccinated, it's not like he lacks for sex partners. But maybe hearing from you that he's never going to get access to your exquisite pussy again will give him some incentive to go get vaccinated. Last couple of weeks – Vaccination rates are actually rising. It seems that right-wing, anti-vax, anti-mask 
radio talk show hosts dying in droves is having some impact on the idiots out there. And some of them are coming around and getting vaccinated now. Well, this guy obviously hasn't been motivated by the deaths of all these right-wing talkers. But maybe hearing from you that he's going to have to get vaccinated and get a real vaccination card or maybe get vaccinated in front of you, you will accompany him to the Walgreens or the CBS, will fucking finally convince this idiot to go get vaccinated. But even if, you know what, even if he did get vaccinated so that he could keep having sex with you, oh my God, I just stumble, I bump on, as they say in Hollywood, I bump on that fake vaccination card and what that means about the person he is and what he is capable of and his casual disregard, not just for his own health, but for the lives and safety of everyone around him. Yeah, not somebody you want to be naked with in a bed, not somebody you want around your body, much less inside it. Hi, Dan. Um, So listening to a bunch of older episodes, I've heard you say a lot that a good way to determine what your sexual orientation is, is um, to think about what you masturbate about. And I am a bisexual woman. I'm in my late 20s. Um, and I have always exclusively masturbated to images or thoughts about women. But I do enjoy having sex with men. Um, but it's just I, I need that physical kind of presence um, with a man to have a good time having sex with a man. If it's just about like the imagery, I just find the female form to be a lot more of a turn on for me. So I'm just wondering um, if you think maybe I lean more homosexual than I may have thought or whether maybe I'm just kind of an exception to your rule. Um, Because really like when I'm masturbating, like, cannot have an orgasm thinking about men. It just, it just doesn't work. And I've tried. So I'd love your thoughts. Thanks so much. You can be authentically a hundred percent bisexual and have a preference where the gender of your particular favored sex partner is concerned. So you're not disqualified. It's not like you're tipping into homosexuality and you're going to fall over into homosexuality because when you fantasize, when you imagine having sex, when you masturbate, it's women that you think about, women that get you off, and yet you enjoy also having sex with men, presumably having sex with men that you are physically attracted to, who pull your eye to. It's just men aren't your go-to. Men aren't your primary erotic interest or target. And that can be true and you can still be 100,000% bisexual. Yeah, maybe what I've said for a long time, mostly to clearly gay closeted guys, what do you masturbate about? People say, oh, I don't know. I'm confused about my sexuality. And I will say, well, what do you masturbate about? And they will say, oh, and they'll get a look on their face. Usually it's guys I'm talking to at this moment. Get a look on his face because he knows what he masturbates about. He knows what that means, what the implications of that are. He's just still wrestling with accepting that. He's already accepted it to some extent. It's what he's masturbating about. He just hasn't brought himself to a point where he can admit it, even if he can have a conversation about being confused about his sexuality. Anyway, 
that was probably not a helpful construct for you as a bisexual person in thinking about what turns you on and what it might mean. Also not helpful is having been told for decades, and you hear less of this now thanks to bisexual activists like Robin Oaks. Please look up her definition of bisexuality. You hear less of this now, but for years you heard to be bi meant you were equally attracted to men and women emotionally and sexually. And we know that that's not true from the lived experience of most bisexuals. And while I sometimes complain and joke about the ever-expanding taxonomy of sexual orientations and gender identities, I think it's really helpful now that we talk about being bisexual but heteroromantic or being homoromantic but bisexual, that there are other labels that help explain your bisexuality and the way it functions in your life to you and that are available to you to help explain them to others. So do a deep dive if you care to on all the different labels out there and I think you'll find one that allows you to express who you are, to understand who you are and to still accept that based on the way you move through the world, based on your choice of sex partners, men and women, that you are bi and authentically bi and not revealed to be ratted out by your masturbatory habits and revealed to actually be a secret homosexual. You're not a closeted homosexual. You're actually a bisexual with a strong sexual preference for other women. So strong a sexual preference for other women that dominates your fantasy life. That's your go-to when you masturbate, but you still are attracted to men, still enjoy sex with men. You are still bisexual. Hey Dan, I'm calling because I've always had issues getting and keeping hard during sex. I'm a 22-year-old gay man and uh, a cis gay man, but um, I have luckily been able to just spot him for most of the time. Um, but I think that I'm spiritually and actually uh, verse. <laughs> like, I actually want to talk to, um, but I kind of just brush it off and end up bottom, bottoming. But um, as soon as a guy gives me attention, I usually get in my head about it. So, like, I blame it on, like, drinking or drugs, even if I'm sober. Um, but, like, I kind of just push it off and forget about it and focus on them. But what could this be? Is this, like, a physical issue? Is this, like, a mental thing? How do I even go about that? Like, I can get hard, like, you know, morning wood and jerking off and I get horny. And I can even be, like, super horny during sex and super into it um, and trying to top a guy but just not able to get that rock hard, I don't know, that you need. And I'm also 22, so I feel like I'm definitely too young for drugs, or am I, or I don't know. You're not too young for drugs at 22. You could take an ED med. I'm tempted to ship you some ED meds myself to get you on the phone, to get your address, and send you some magic boner pills that are really just Flintstones, vitamins, or sugar pills, because what you need, the benefit that an ED med would have for you is just the confidence boost. You have performance anxiety around topping. You're 22 years old. You've mostly been bottoming. You have performance anxiety. You get in your own head and you worry that you're not going to have an erection, not going to have the rock hard erection that you need to top. And then surprise, you don't have that erection. You could wear a cock ring. You could take Viagra or take my magic sugar pills that would provide you with the placebo effect that I think would benefit you as much as the actual effects of Viagra and allow you to get out of your head and have the erection and enjoy the erection. Those are strategies you could employ. You could also 
find a regular sex partner, someone that you have sex with regularly and share this problem that you've been having that you get in your own head and you're a little anxious. And this should be someone that is verse, but that has been topping you and just put it out there that at some point you would like to top them and make it a little project that you're going to work on together. You're going to build your way up, work your way up to fucking that guy. And the benefit of it being a guy who's fucking you, a verse guy is that when he's fucking you and when you guys are messing around and you're not going to fuck him, you're not going to suddenly be seized by performance anxiety. He's going to see that when he's fucking you or when you guys are just having oral or mutual masturbation and rolling around that you are rock hard. And gradually his confidence in your erection is going to jump to you and you're going to get more confident in your erections when you're with him because he knows that your dick can do this. And so a time will come when he's fucking you and then he's just going to roll over and stick his ass in the air and you're already going to be hard and he's going to believe in your dick and you're going to believe in your dick. It'll be a Tinkerbell moment. Everybody will be clapping for your dick and it'll live and you'll get it in his ass and you will get past this performance anxiety. Nothing like a few successful attempts to get you past this kind of performance anxiety. If that's too long an investment of time and emotional effort, creating that kind of relationship with somebody who can tinkerbell your dick into him, go ahead. Talk to your doctor about Viagra. It is a legitimate reason for someone to have Viagra prescribed to them to get past this kind of performance anxiety, to relax and have confidence in their dick, in their erection because they took that pill. Doctors will prescribe Viagra to you for that reason. And then if you go around with Viagra, start to believe in your dick, you'll start messing around, you'll forget to take the Viagra, your hard-on will be there, your rock-hard cock will be there, it'll be buried in some guy's ass, and then you won't need the Viagra as often or so much or at all anymore. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old lady living out in the West. My question is, what do you think is the appropriate time to confide in somebody that you have a sugar daddy or a sugar mama or a sugar parent. I'm in a non-monogamous, very non-monogamous phase in my life right now. So I divulge the information to my partners when I meet new people. I divulge that information. Hey, I'm seeing other people, but I don't mention that one of my relationships is really, I think of it as sex work. You know, it's like my second job. And My sugar daddy thinks he's my boyfriend, and we spend a lot of time together, so it's been a little bit difficult kind of skirting around that fact that this person I'm calling my friend is is really something different. But to me, I don't know if this falls under the category of, of admitting that I'm in another relationship or if it falls under the category of, hey, this is sex work and it's taboo, and it's fair for me to decide who I tell and who I don't tell. I don't want to be hurting anybody, but I also like to keep my private business, my my own private business. So I I listened to your call and I'm a little unclear as to whether your sugar daddy knows that he's a sugar daddy. Oh man. Yeah. He, um, I mean, he does, but at this point he does call himself my boyfriend, which I just allow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't really feed into it. And was that clear from the, the beginning of this transactional relationship that what he was paying for was kind of the the girlfriend experiences they call it the yes. GFE? Yes, yeah, that's what he was looking for was companionship, 
and um, somebody to spend time with and not necessarily just sex, um, you know, kind of the whole package. But he knew he would be paying you for that and yes. he continues to pay you for that. Yes, he does. Uh, okay. Well then, you know, I, I think some people may think that that's, you know, in a gray area. Uh, I don't necessarily think so because, you know, if somebody's paying you for the GFE, you don't have to remind them every time they use the word girlfriend that, okay, yeah, but really not. You don't have to say that, right? <laughs> yeah, that would you make it al- weird. You can allow them to suspend their disbelief and regard you as a girlfriend. That's part of what he's paying you for. Right. Yeah. As to whether you need to disclose the fact that you're doing sex work to other casual partners, I don't think so. And I think the fact that the sex work that you do involves just one client as opposed to seeing multiple clients, you know, usually the advice is someone who's dating you has a right to know, you know, informed consent if dating you means they're at higher risk than they might be otherwise of an Mm -hmm. exposure to an STI. That is not to say Mm -hmm. that sex workers are at greater risk of contracting STI. Sex workers are often more careful about using condoms, using them correctly, using them consistently than muggles and present less <laughs> risk than somebody who's just like fucking around a little bit uh, yeah. or someone who says they're being a monogamous or somebody who's just casually dating but dating multiple people might present. But, you know, my sex worker pals don't want to wind up in long-term relationships where then they have to roll that out down the road and then the person is going to feel like angry potentially about being lied to by omission about something so stigmatized. It's a, it's a risk for the sex worker to withhold that information. You don't want to date people. Yeah. Sex worker who aren't comfortable with the fact that they are dating a sex worker. Yeah, absolutely. I did, I did kind of suss that out with, um, this, this person in particular that I'm seeing, uh, who's not my sugar daddy. Um, Mm you know, kind of asking him on the real down low what his <laughs> views on sex work were. And, you know, he had great things to say, so that was good. But um, that is my concern is like, well, if I wait because I think it's not a big deal and, you know, two months down the road and we're we're maybe more seriously dating and then I bring it up, I don't, I feel like that would be such a a, a bad move. Yeah, potentially a bad mood. There are the considerations, you know, around his right to know and informed consent for him. But there's also your feelings that have to be taken into consideration. Not just your your safety around doing something that's kind of stigmatized, but you know, the longer you wait to tell him, the larger an emotional investment you will have made in him and the relationship. Mm-hmm. And if this is disqualifying, as far as he's concerned, once he finds out, well, then you're going to get your heart broken. If it's disqualifying, you want to know that before you make a huge emotional investment in this guy. All that said, I do think that sugar baby, sugar daddy, or sugar mama arrangements are a little different because it's one other person. You're not hanging out a shingle and seeing multiple clients, not to stigmatize you know, my sex worker pals who see many clients, but it's a different kind of sex work. And it almost falls in a gray area between sex work and just being in an open relationship or polyamorous. It's just right. one of your relationships is transactional in a way that, you know, I'm so cynical. I think all relationships are transactional. We all pay for it. We don't always pay for it with money. We pay for it with time, affection, attention, diligence, intimacy, care. But we all kind of pay in. And if we don't pay in to the relationship, they tend to end. So uh, some people think that makes me really cynical to describe all relationships as transactional. It's just yours is transactional. This one is transactional in a way that's different than perhaps 
the transactions that go on in your relationship that's more grounded in authentic affection and attraction yeah. than in the arrangement. And I assume there's some mutual affection and attraction there that makes it possible for you to allow him to call himself your boyfriend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I call it my second job because that's what it feels like. But, um, you know, I've had to consider that from another person's perspective who doesn't see how hard I work and how much I don't really want. <laughs> I don't really, you know, want to be dating this person. Um, that it could daddy. just, yes. Yeah. That mm -hmm. it could just look like, you know, another relationship and why wouldn't I disclose that? <sighs> yeah. I think you should disclose it for your own sake. Not that you're in, uh, I think, peril or anything, but it's in your own self-interest to disclose it, to protect your yourself, your income, your heart. I think you can wait a little bit. When there's something hugely stigmatized, I don't think you should wait forever to tell someone because then the stakes get higher and higher when you get to the reveal. But allowing someone to get you in, to know you just a little bit before you tell them something that they may have prejudices about or, or a cultural bias about allowing them to get to know you so they can weigh the person that they've gotten to know a little bit against their biases is often a really good strategy. Yeah. Or someone who yeah. struggles under stigma and shame. That's I think unfair and often irrational. So I guess my advice is wait a little bit, not too long. And I'm relieved to hear that your sugar daddy actually knows he's your sugar daddy and not your boyfriend. <laughs> Yeah, that's something we're going to have to be working on for a while, you know, as the relationship goes on, <sighs> setting boundaries. Good um, luck. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you're, you. You're welcome. Thank you for your question. Hey, Dan and Sandy Texavi at Rescue. I'm a woman in my early 30s, and I have a question about asexuality, or more specifically, if it is possible to turn asexual uh, later in your adult life. I'm wondering about that because I have been extremely sexually active for the biggest part of my adult life. Uh, since I was a teenager, I was completely obsessed with sex to the point where I decided to dedicate most of my 20s to sex work, um, which has been both good and bad. Uh, most of this experience has been processed by now, so it's no longer a problem. However, while I was doing that, and even after I quit, I was never able to sustain a healthy relationship. I, I always seem to fall back in the same patterns, uh, relationship patterns, sexual patterns, which, which have just made me miserable and not wanting to pursue that anymore. Yeah, I'm just completely fed up with trying to, to fix that and break out of these patterns, so I decided to stop. But I seem to have completely lost any interest at all in the sex, dating, and relationships. So my question is, do you think I just saturated myself? Or do you think it's possible that I have completely turned myself into an asexual? Is that something that can happen then? So your question is, did you blow a gasket and wind up asexual? Uh, I don't know. Asexuality is a thing. Asexuality exists. Roughly 1% of the population is uh, believed by sex researchers, by scientists, but with the evidence and data to be asexual. You weren't always asexual, but you have lost interest for the moment in sex and relationships. Does that make you asexual? Not by that research and data definition, I don't think. That said, you are free to identify 
as asexual, if that identity, if that label rings true to you, feels comfortable, and helps you to communicate to others who you are at this moment. I have a friend who, when I met him, he was bisexual. He had a girlfriend, now married to a man, and has only had sex with other men for at least a decade, now identifies as gay. He's actually, functionally, his orientation is bi, but he moves to the world as a gay man, and that label, the gay label, although not a perfect fit, communicates to others who he is and how he self-identifies at this moment. I've always described sexual identity, sexual orientation as kind of a layer cake. There's who you want to fuck, who you are fucking, and then what you tell people. Those are the three layers. And the more neatly aligned your layers are, the less messy a cake you are. But those layers aren't always in perfect alignment. My friend who identifies as gay is bisexual, but then what he's doing is 100% same-sex male, gay, and what he tells people is gay. So his cake is mostly in alignment. In your case, you know, you were a very sexual person. Now you've completely lost interest. You're not sexually active. You're not seeking a relationship. And then, okay, do you want to tell people you're asexual? Is that how you want to identify? I think that's a perfectly legitimate way for you to identify, also recognizing that as many people argue, as some people say, as some people experience, it's sexual orientation, in addition to gender identity, can be fluid and unstable over time. And so maybe you've arrived at asexuality, maybe you always were asexual and your disastrous romantic and sexual history was a process of discovery where then you uncovered the fact that you've been asexual all along. And you've clicked your heels together three times and now here you are in Oz, asexual Oz or back in Kansas, depending on how you view it. And is it legitimate? Yeah, I think it's legitimate. Does it work for you? That would be my question. Are you comfortable with this identity? If you're unhappy, if you miss sex and relationships, but you're just feeling really shut down right now and not feeling any desire – might be something to explore with a therapist, which is not to say that people who are asexual need therapy to get sexual again or to get sexual at all ever. But in your case, yeah, identify as asexual. If you miss sex, if you miss relationships, if that's something you want in your life again, well, then maybe you won't always be asexual identified. And maybe if you do work with a therapist or you just sit with who you are right now and how you feel right now, it'll change in time. And you will continue to change at time as you have already changed. But yeah, yeah, you can use asexual. You can identify as asexual. And I think your brand of asexuality, although not most people's brands of asexuality, is legit. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old female living in Montana. I recently got out of a relationship that really sucked. And I'm just not really ready for a relationship, a relationship, something serious, something, you know, with expectations and all that. And I'm trying to date women because I'm bisexual, but I'm mostly dating men and I'm just like having a hard time. And like, there's this girl that I like and I really like being her friend, but I'm also very curious about making out with her, but I don't want to fuck up our friendship. And like, I think she'd probably be okay with it, but like. I don't know. I just, I just, I don't, I don't want to fuck anything up and I could use some advice. Let's zoom out to 30,000 feet for just a second. 
There are lots of ways to fuck up a friendship. All of us have friendships that ended for reasons that had nothing to do with sleeping with each other. Yeah, you could fuck this friend and the sex could get weird or someone could catch feelings or want something the other doesn't and the friendship could end. You could also not fuck this friend and something can get weird and someone could have a feeling or perceive something as a betrayal and the friendship could end. It's not like refraining from fucking your friends protects friendships eternally. And who knows? Sometimes, you know, we always talk about sex, porn, everything related to sex at all as a thing that can only introduce a problem or a strain or make shit worse. Sometimes friends fuck around and get closer. Sometimes friends fuck around and wind up in relationships because they discover that both want more and the same from that relationship. And if neither had been willing to risk the friendship by fucking around with a friend, there are some people I know in long-term committed, successful, romantic relationships that wouldn't exist if they hadn't been willing back when they were just friends, just FWBs or just becoming FWBs, if they weren't willing to risk that friendship. And you never know. You can avoid risking that friendship where sex is concerned and the friendship can still end. So I think you should go for it. This is my long way of saying go for it. Fully informed, mutual consent, tell your friend what you're worried about. Don't avoid the awkwardness. Say, look, I have these sexual feelings for you, but I don't want to risk the friendship and was wondering where you're at and who knows, you may become closer friends, you may wind up in a relationship, you may fuck around for a little while and then it gets awkward because one or the other begins to feel differently and has to call it, has to end it and the other has hurt feelings and then you risk the friendship and the friendship is over and then in two, three years you circle back and you're friends again, but now friends who not never fucked, but don't fuck anymore. And this isn't an insurance policy. It's not fail-safe. There are no guarantees. But when you talk to your friend about perhaps becoming FWBs and when you acknowledge the awkwardness and when you acknowledge the risk potentially to the friendship, you should say to each other, look, if things get weird, if things get awkward, if there's any hurt feelings, let's do what we can both. Let's promise now in advance of either of us getting hurt feelings to work at preserving, saving, prioritizing the friendship. No guarantee if you get to that moment where, you know, shit goes south that the friendship will be preserved. But if you both promised each other, you've made a promise in advance that if things get awkward, you're going to focus on the friendship and try your best to preserve it. Try your best to walk away from the FWB thing, still Fs, even without the WB anymore, you're likelier to achieve that if you promise that in advance. Again, no guarantees that you'll actually achieve that. But the odds are better. Odds are better. Much, much better. If in advance of somebody getting hurt feelings, in advance of an infidelity, if in advance of a whatever, two people have promised each other that they're going to try to make it up to each other, try to work through it, try to get through it and still be together, stay together as friends in this case or as a couple in the case of infidelity. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm calling uh, with a wedding conundrum. I grew up in a cult and left right before I turned 17, and my siblings all eventually left as well. My big sister is getting married this Saturday, and originally she decided to keep 
a lot of our family members who were still sort of involved either in the cult or were a part of severe abuse we experienced growing up. She originally was going to keep them from coming to the wedding. And I just got a text message from her saying that she doesn't feel comfortable keeping her wedding a secret from them, uh, in particular, our very, very abusive father. I haven't spoken to my father in six years uh, since the funeral for my mother. I'm really upset now because I love her more than anything, and I would want to be there for her wedding. But any and all progress I've made in my life is from removing my abusive father. I don't want to have to see him to see my sister experience one of the happiest days of her life. And I don't know what to do now. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Amanda Montel, writer, linguist, author of the critically acclaimed books, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, and Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language. Her writing has appeared in publications like Marie Claire, Teen Vogue, Cosmopolitan, and others. And she is the creator and co-host of the terrific and relatively new podcast sounds like a cult. Hey, Amanda, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Hey, of course. Thanks for having uh, me. Before we get to the caller's problem, I, I, I want to just heap some praise on you. I've, I've been listening. I don't know how I stumbled over your podcast, but I've been listening since the first one and I so wow. enjoy it. And you guys basically, you look at larger cultural things, things that people might not think of as religions or cults and ask, does this sound like a cult? You've done shows about soul cycle, astrology, feet, frats. What inspired you to to create this podcast and to start looking at other things beyond cults and seeing if there's cultishness going on in those things too? Well, my background is in linguistics. I see the world through this language lens. Um, and I also grew up with a cult survivor in the family. My dad spent his teenage years against his will in a pretty notorious cult called Synanon, which was promised to be the sort of socialist utopia and ended up being pretty exploitative and destructive. Um, and the most interesting part of my dad's story to me was always the language that they used in Synanon, the special buzzwords, et cetera, that they used to create solidarity, encourage conformity, all of the things that a cult needs to do in order to gain and maintain power. And throughout my life, I always heard sort of Synanon-esque language, cultish language in spaces you might not otherwise think of as cults, like the theater program I was in in high school and the startup where I worked in my early 20s, the way that my friends in California would talk about Soul Cycle. So when I set out to write my book, my new book, which is called Cultish, the Language of Fanaticism, I knew that I wanted to talk about this wide spectrum of groups that we might not all agree are full-blown cults, which is a word that scholars can't even agree on a definition for, but that we can at least agree are cult ish. And so there are so many cultish groups in contemporary culture. There are lots of reasons for that. But fraternities and sororities, astrology, self-help gurus, spiritual influencers, they all fall into this category of sort of zeitgeisty cultish group that I wanted to explore in the podcast. And you and your co-host, Issa Medina, you do a deep dive on, you know, on something like Soul Cycle. You examine the cultish practices, maybe the, the cultish use of language. And then you issued a determination at the end of each episode about whether this thing is or is not a cult. Have you heard from people who were offended when you declared something like obsessing about the royal family or foot fetishism, uh, cultish or not cultish, particularly the people 
who are upset when you've decided, yeah, this thing is kind of a cult? That's so funny. Yeah, it's it's an, it's a good question. Um, it's funny that you brought up the royal family as your first example. The only people who were offended were Brits um, <laughs> who who didn't even listen to that episode of the podcast, but instead read a, a, a Daily Mail tabloid article that was written about my thoughts on um, thinking of the royal family as falling somewhere along the cultish spectrum. So um, this topic requires a lot of nuance, and if you're just sort of you know blowing past it on the internet without really, you know, taking a careful listen, then you could get triggered. But um, by and large, people seem to be really on board with this idea that cults fall along a spectrum. Even survivors of the most notorious cults of all time, including Jonestown, Heaven's Gate, Nexium, are tend to be really on board with this topic. Um, cult is one of those words that's become so subjective, so sensationalized that it's not even really used by most scholars who study new religions, alternative religions, etc. Um, and we as listeners are actually pretty savvy naturally at being able to pick up on the context and stakes whenever a familiar word is invoked in conversation. So yeah, Isa and I have these three cult categories that we use to um, sort of classify each of the groups that we tackle on the podcast. We either classify them as a live your life, a watch your back, or a get the fuck out. Um, and so, yeah, no, most listeners tend to be pretty on board with that without much And is your advice to members of the royal family to get the fuck out? Yeah, I think I I think I determined that it was a watch your back and Isa called it a get the fuck out. No, really, I'm not sort of prescribing that anyone completely disaffiliate from whatever cultish group they're a part of. I think, you know, seeking community and connection and ritual, these are profoundly human drives. And sometimes we look toward these quote unquote cultish or alternative groups to fill those voids. Some of them are fairly harmless. Some of them are quite exploitative. And being aware of some of the red flags or elements of cultish language, rhetoric, exploitation, etc., can help us each individually decide, do we want to continue to engage with this group or guru? And if so, to what extent? And we shouldn't be too on our guard against, you know, joining groups. Like we're human, we're social animals. We want to be a part of groups. We want to be a part of little tribes. And often that can mean, you know, defining in and out group, sometimes with coded language. It's not always toxic. Sometimes it's knowing, affectionate, even ironic. What you have to be on guard against is when they start wanting to brand you and make you into sex slaves for the leader, the dear leader, as with next year. <laughs> uh, and at least by that point, you should That's be right. course correcting the fuck out of there. All right, let's uh, jump on the, the the questioner's dilemma. This is someone uh, who, like your father, was raised in a cult and now has gotten to a place where she's happy, healthy, feels safe, still has a relationship with some of her family members, family of origin, her sister. But her dad, who she's had to cut out of her life, who it sounds like is still involved with this cult, if not a leader of the cult, has been invited to this wedding and she can't face being in a room with him. What does she do? What would you advise her to do in a circumstance like this? It's so challenging. And I have to tell you, you know, one of the most humbling parts of researching my book was seeing the comparisons between cult affiliation and being in a toxic one-on-one -on -one relationship. You know, I found that being in a toxic one-on-one -on -one relationship is really just a cult of one. So anybody who's ever had, you know, an abusive affiliation with a romantic partner, a boss, 
even a friend can probably put themselves in this caller's shoes, the language that we use to talk about cults and the language that we use to talk about abusive relationship, r- relationships is different. You know, we'll talk about love bombing with cults. It might be called grooming in one-on-one relationships talk about brainwashing with cults, whereas we might use psychological abuse or manipulation with relationships. Um, You know, cult leaders are known as these charismatic gurus, while abusive lovers are charming narcissists. There are these really strong parallels. Um, And so I completely relate to her dilemma here because I too have been in my fair share of toxic one-on-one relationships and have done a certain amount of of healing and work to um, create a, a healthy boundary for myself. And I can only imagine what it would feel like to, you know, be invited to my, my sibling's wedding, which is supposed to be this really joyous celebratory day, only to find out that someone who had abused me, who I've been working for many years um, to sort of separate myself from is going to be there. Um, you know, I guess this is slightly above my pay grade, but I would, you know, probably invite her to have, you know, a, a really transparent, intimate, vulnerable conversation with her sister and remind her of all the work that she's done to overcome some of that trauma. It sounds like she has a lot of trauma as a result of her cult experience, naturally. Um, and just to sort of set the stakes for her, um, for her sister, um, because, you know, it sounds like she and her sister are healing in different ways from their experience and they're both completely valid and she should have every right to set that boundary. And, you know, it's, it's her sister, it's really in her sister's court, the ball is in her court in terms of whether she wants to honor that boundary of her sister, maybe do some further reflection on her part. And, and, and let, let, let's make that concrete. Honoring the sister means disinviting dad and the caller. A lot of people are really uncomfortable with issuing ultimatums where they want people just to know or, or to just, you know, uh, to do what they hoped they would do without actually having to ask them. And caller, you may be in a situation where you're going to have to say to your sister, like, I can't be there if dad's there. And I'm sorry if that puts you in an awkward position and I'll hate to miss it. But if dad's coming, I'm not coming. I think that's really valid, you know, because this stuff can be extremely traumatic. It's, it's years of gaslighting manipulation. Who knows that there was physical abuse or very well could have been sexual abuse. I mean, this is a lot of stuff that goes down in some of the most destructive cults. And it seems like that was an experience of hers. So, you know, okay, ultimatum, that's like a dirty word, but you know, she has to take care of her own mental health and there is no playbook for how to recover from these experiences, you know, like, and everybody recovers in a different way. So yeah, I would totally invite her to sit down her sister and say, you know, maybe it, it you don't have to hide the way from dad, but maybe it's not appropriate for him to be there on this most joyous celebratory day of your life sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's perfectly legitimate. And if your sister doesn't disinvite your dad, you're not obligated to go and that'll suck for you. Like if you tell your sister, you have to choose between me and dad and she chooses dad. Yeah. That's going to create a rift that itself will take some time to, and work to heal, but you don't have to show up to a wedding where you're going to be traumatized by the presence of your abusive father. For sure. It's such complicated territory. And I would also invite everyone who's had an experience like this to, you know, approach it with grace. Like every cult survivor is going to have a different relationship to their experience. My, my dad doesn't have a lot of trauma 
for some mysterious, mind-blowing reason. But there are people who went through his exact experience and do have a lot of trauma. So when talking about this cult stuff, it's really important not to pass judgment, as difficult as that is, on people who've had these these experiences, have chosen to recover from them a certain way, um, just to grant one another as much grace as humanly possible and to really, you know, come to conversations like the one she'll probably have to have with her sister in a really open-hearted way. Amanda Montel, writer, linguist, author of the critically acclaimed new book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, also co-host of Sounds Like a Cult with uh, her co-host Issa Medina. It's a terrific show if you've ever been curious about whether Flat Earthers or The Bachelor and Bachelorette franchise are cults. Sounds Like a Cult has the answers for you. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone, Amanda. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Hi, Dan, a bisexual 36-year-old male in the upper Midwest here. Uh, my wife and I have gotten into BDSM more in the last few years. We've been in a femdom relationship for the, for the last year and a half, which has been really fun. And uh, it's mainly kind of been at home, but recently we've tried uh, we've tried to get out a little bit more. We've been to fetishes at events in the, past, in the past where it's mainly just dressing up, but we did go to a play party at a local club recently, and it was a lot of fun. I have for a number of years really leaned into kind of dressing up sexy, wearing sexy underwear. I've even done a little bit of of like being a shop boy at a gay bar in town, and I I find it a lot of fun. So I really leaned into that. But when I go to these events, I kind of notice that unless they're um, men, there tends to be like kind of a group of gay men who go to these fetish events and stuff that they will wear the kind of stuff that I wear, which is like uh, harnesses, jock straps, things like that. But there's a lot of guys who, you know, I don't want to make any assumptions about um, about sexuality or anything, but there's a number of guys who are kind of straight presenting who will really just not do very much. Like, you know, like it's one thing if you like got like a full leather outfit with like a vest and all this stuff, that's cool. Like there's some joy there, but like it's just like cargo shorts and a t-shirt and not really doing very much. And this is something that like, I even brought up on a Reddit board. And I got a lot of kind of, yeah, we've noticed that too from a lot of the women who are, you know, like dominant women, especially when they see these kind of dude bros all in the corner, not in fetish gear. So I wanted to know what your take on that was, because I feel a little frustrated because I'm, I'm putting myself out there and a lot of people are putting themselves out there. I don't want there to be like a rule that you have to, show your ass, but at the same time, putting some effort, I feel like, would be, you know, not that much to ask. This is why a lot of fetish parties, kink parties, play parties, why a lot of them have dress codes. It's to prevent the straight guys from showing up in cargo shorts, and there really is no more straight presenting an item of clothing than cargo shorts. But there's something interesting and complicated going on under the surface here. It's not just straight guys not trying There's something about the awareness of yourself as an object, dressing up, dressing sexy, that is perceived to be feminine. That's why a lot of gay men are perfectly comfortable with it because we can't be gay without embracing some people perceiving you perhaps to be feminine in a way and either embracing that or rejecting that but just not being shamed or constrained by that possible perception. But straight guys going to a play party, straight guys going to a fetish event – They may feel that it's emasculating or demasculating 
to be aware of themselves as an object that might be looked at. Women are for looking at the male gaze. Women are for looking at men are for doing the looking. And so it can be emasculating or feel emasculating subconsciously for straight guys to present themselves, to really present their asses like baboons at a fetish event. And that's the hang up for a lot of straight guys. But it's also a hang up that's reinforced by some straight women that when they see a guy, you know, in the harness and jockstrap like you are, they may assume that guy is gay or bi and be less attracted to that guy or less willing to engage with that guy sexually. So it's not just that straight guys at fetish events, at straight fetish events or predominantly straight fetish events are more comfortable in the t-shirt and cargo shorts. A lot of their sex partners or the people they'd like to get with sexually are also a lot of their female potential sex partners. They're more comfortable with the straight guys they, they might want to get with not dressing up like a gay dude. That can be less attractive to a woman, a man who is dressing up to attract attention to invite objectification not only to the man can that seem emasculating it can appear emasculating or less masculine less therefore attractive to many women on the fetish scene now there are probably a lot of women into fetish and kink and go to these play parties who are running to their phones now to record responses to me and saying no 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 they like it when the guys come I'm saying this is a dynamic, not true for everyone, of course, but I think that's a lot of what's going on under the surface here. It's not just that women are willing to put up with this. It's that some women prefer this and men can be subconsciously very conscious of that dynamic, which is why I endorse and support dress codes at fetish events for everyone so that everyone's in gear, so that everyone's making an effort, so everyone is trying, including the straight guys. And you know what? Any fetish event where you can walk through the door in cargo shorts and a t-shirt, not a fetish event that I would go to twice. Hey, Dan. I'm having my first orgy. Planning it right now uh, to coincide with the fish concerts in Denver. And I've got a group of uh, sexy fish freaks that are getting together after the first night's show. Extremely COVID safe, uh, triple level COVID safety protocols, all vaccination and tests before and tests at the door. But uh, my question is uh, just for any tips that you might have for a novice orgy organizer, organizer, I was just thinking specifically I'm looking for content to play on the screen in the, in the, the venue that we've rented uh, while everyone is hanging out and uh, with your, film festival, I thought you'd be a unique person to ask with a unique perspective, rather, for uh, some content that we might be able to show that is sexy without sound, because music will be playing in the in the background, but for just video content, and any other tips you might have. As the coiner of many new terms, kind of a neologism expert, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and predict that orginizer is not going to take off. Look, you're hosting an orgy. You don't want to watch porn during an orgy. You want to live porn during an orgy. So don't think about putting porn up on that screen. Just put something neutral, whatever. You could put up an old Doris Day movie. Here's the pro tip. At the orgy, you don't want the sex on the screen. 
to compete for eyeballs with the sex happening right in front of you or your guests. So, yeah, you're a fish fan? Fish freaks you self-identified as? I don't want to get in trouble with the fish people by calling you a freak. You said fish freak. There's got to be some psychedelic, trippy loop on YouTube or wherever that would appeal to your freaky fish demographic and not compete, again, for eyeballs during the orgy. You want people to watch what they're doing. You want people to watch what every other fish freak in the room is doing. You don't want them looking up at the screens and watching porn. Hi, Dan. I was just pulled over while I was driving around with my sub and I have a truck. So of course the cop was looking directly at him the whole time because why would I know anything about my truck? And little did the cop know my sub had his little dick locked up in chastity the whole time. And that's what those keys around my neck were to. And yeah, I just want the whole world to know that a cop was just talking to my little subby bitch whose dick was in a cage. And I think that's hilarious. And maybe that cop's a solicitor. You know what you guys were doing? Secret perving. There's a whole chapter in my new book, Savage Love from A to Z, on the concept of, the concept I endorse, secret perving. That cop had no idea that the dude in the truck that he assumed was running the show, the one in charge, the man he needed to talk to, was actually your locked bitch. And you got off on that. You got off on what the cop didn't know, what you knew, what your locked subby boy bitch knew. You got off on the secret, on the secret perving of it. I'm glad that made what otherwise would have felt just like a useless sexist insult delivered to you by that cop into something that perversely you took some pleasure in. Let's hear it for secret perving. It really can make the world a better place. So long as, as I go into in my book, in the secret perving chapter, so long as it is indeed secret perving. Hey, Dan, 33-year-old longtime Magnum subscriber calling with a question about what to do when everyone in a poly relationship is a pud. So my husband and I have been together since university, and we opened up our relationship about four years ago after many years of being monogamous. Over time, we adopted a fairly broad version of non-monogamy. Originally, we started out seeing people separately and with lots of rules and restrictions, but as we got more comfortable, we dropped most of the rules, became at ease talking about our experiences with others, and started also playing together and going to parties. Non-monogamy is something we've both really enjoyed and fully embraced, and it's an integrated part of our marriage. That being said, we've always been clear that neither of us wanted to be poly, and we've therefore always had the rule that we're not supposed to catch feelings or fall in love. This was going great until three months ago when I met and fell in love with someone. I didn't keep my growing feelings from my husband, and he understandably felt caught off guard and hurt that this line had been crossed. But he said I could continue exploring this new relationship, and now all of us are trying to define what we are and where we're going. From my perspective... Even though I wasn't looking for this and I don't want to hurt my husband, I love both of these men and I want to be able to build my relationships with them. My husband is trying to accept my newfound relationship, but he's still finding it really difficult to overcome his feelings that our relationship is at risk. And while my new partner wouldn't have looked to be with someone in a relationship, he's respectful of my marriage and doesn't want to overstep, but he also wants our relationship to grow. 
Since we were already open and I now have two romantic partners, we find ourselves in a situation where we're poly by default. All of us want to be sexually non-exclusive, but in reality, none of us were seeking polyamory and none of us believe we want to be poly long-term. Essentially, we're just three puds. All of us have accepted this arrangement for now and are trying to find our way. But is this doomed to fail since none of us wanted poly in the first place? Or can we make this work? Is this even possible to navigate? Or is this just a case of unethical polyamory where I'm just trying to have my cake and eat it too? Some rules that couples lay down when they open their relationships are pretty easy to honor in perpetuity. Not in our house. Not in our bed. This one sex act, just for me. Not in our time zone. That's Some people have that as a rule. Those are rules that anybody who isn't an opportunistic asshole has an easy time honoring. Again, in perpetuity, forever, for decades. The catch feelings rule, that can be harder because people aren't always looking for feelings. If you open your relationship and the rule is not in our bed, well, there's plenty of other beds in the world, including in hotels and motels in your city. If you have regular sex partners, though, if you're allowed to see someone more than once, even if you just see someone once, there's always a chance you could click with them. And there's that moment when you fuck somebody for the first time or you're dating somebody where a future, a potential future just unspools in your head because you so enjoy spending time with them. The dopamine hits are coming. But not just that chemical thing. There's just you see a relationship because you have a relationship and then you find yourself in the position that you have found yourself. You caught feelings. That happens. You know, people say I have a friends with benefits relationship and we both agreed that there will be no catching of feelings. Okay, great. Impossible to control for in all circumstances, which is where you found yourself. You and your husband, you opened your marriage. The rule, we don't want to be poly, just open. You can have sex with other people, can't have feelings for other people. Well, you have sex with other people, there's always that risk. You're going to develop feelings for that other person. And so you've found yourself where many, 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 many other people who've opened their relationship have found themselves. This is something I think people who are going to open their relationship should talk about in advance of opening the relationship. And if it's really important that there be no feelings for anyone else, no tiptoeing up to polyamory, no concurrent romantic intimate sexual relationships or no other romantic sexual relationships or no relationships with others like that, maybe you establish a one-off rule. Easier for gay couples to establish a one-off rule. Women have a lot more to factor in to having multiple sex partners than gay men do because testosterone-soaked dick monsters, because women are always having to negotiate Sexually, straight women, women who want male partners in a world of potential male violence and sexual violence. And it can be very difficult. It can actually raise the bar on having an open relationship that functions for both parties if the woman isn't allowed to have a regular, see somebody more than once, make a connection that makes her feel safe with that particular testosterone-soaked dick monster. Okay, I feel like I'm telling you things that you should already know by now or you already know because you wound up poly under duress or poly by default, PBD. You say that none of you want to be poly long-term and that's ominous. What you're saying is you're eventually going to have to pick. 
where someone's going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to pick one of these men over the other, your husband or your boyfriend. Your boyfriend is going to have to decide to walk away from you if he can't have you. He's going to have to pick being single or not being with you. Or your husband's going to have to pick leaving you. And that is kind of unfair to all involved. That's just trying to wait it out or tough it out till somebody makes a decision until the situation or the circumstance becomes so intolerable for one person that they make a call that then frees the other two from any responsibility, any agency, any control. And I don't think that's fair to, to anybody, to, to anyone involved in this, what is now a V-shaped poly triad. So I think you should take that off the table. None of us want to be poly long-term. And instead of what you wanted, what you agreed to, what the rules were in the past, you should try to be in this moment where even if nobody wanted this, this is what you are and see if you can't let it work, not make it work, just let it unfold. You know, most new relationships end. Most relationships are STRs. I'm a big fan of getting into our heads that we can have an STR and it can be a successful STR. A short-term relationship can be a success. Almost all of our romantic and sexual relationships are STRs. This problem could resolve itself in time because your relationship with this guy that you've just met could run its course as most new sexual romantic relationships do. And I guess that's sort of him picking or you picking if it runs its course and he ends it or you ends it. If he ends it or you end it, it's run its course. But it wasn't looking at the circumstances of the relationship or the outlines like poly or not poly and making a call. It's letting it be what it is and then exploring it and seeing if everyone doesn't get more comfortable in it. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where you could – someone in your circumstance didn't feel like they had to choose? Choice might be forced on you by your husband or by your boyfriend but I know so many people who were PUDs. A PUD is a phase that couples and individuals can go through where they are poly under duress, who are now happily poly. But the only way to get to that happily poly place is to let the poly under duress stage play out. And you may discover, as you let poly under duress play out, that you will always be in distress. It will always be duress for you. And then you have to end the poly thing, whatever that might look like. The only way to figure out if you can get to happily poly from puddom or PBDdom is to give it time. And it sounds like your boyfriend and your husband are both willing to give it time. And I would encourage you to give it time as well. Hi, Dan. Hi. I am a mid-30s cis hetero male. I'm getting involved in it's probably going to shape up to be a very fulfilling long-term relationship. But over the past few months, I've been thinking about my views towards monogamy and my previous behavior in relationships. And I'm starting to question whether I'm actually monogamous. I've been more of a serial monogamous in the past. And I found your podcast, and it's really opened my eyes to, to different ways of looking at relationships. And because without saying that you you harbor a little bit of animosity or skepticism towards monogamous relationships, and I've started to share that view, but I'd also like to hear the opposite side. So views of those who support or 
in general have positive views of monogamy or the benefits of monogamy, but I don't know real where to, to start. And I wanted to ask you for some suggestions or recommendations of uh, therapists or thinkers who have a positive view or support monogamous relationships so that I can get a more balanced view uh, before I decide how I would like my long-term relationship to look and before having that conversation with my partner. I'm offended. I have a positive view of monogamous relationships. I just have a realistic view of monogamous relationships, but I can certainly see the advantages and the legitimacy of wanting a monogamous relationship, but also the advantages, structural advantages to monogamy, paternal security. That kid is yours. Many, many people feel more emotionally secure in a monogamous relationship. Logistically, a monogamous relationship is a lot easier to deal with than a non-monogamous relationship. Poly people with multiple partners joke about needing Google calendars to keep track and to make sure that they're prioritizing they're all their partners are making sure that their primary partner, if they have a hierarchical poly arrangement, feels like they still are the primary partner. Yeah, it's complicated being polymonogamy a lot simpler. And if you're successfully monogamous, those people in a monogamous relationship, less potential exposure to sexually transmitted infections. Yeah, there are advantages. I fully support the monogamous lifestyle. And if you want more support for monogamy as your lifestyle choice. Well, you have every world religion, 99% of every couples counselor on the planet, 99% of every book about relationships and how to make them work ever written. You don't lack for support or role models. What you don't get from a lot of those other places is realistic expectations. I'm not trying to undermine monogamous relationships when I encourage people who want them to have realistic expectations about what that means. I'm just pushing back against a culture that tells people who want monogamy that monogamy is easy, that it comes naturally, that if you're in love with someone, you won't want to have sex with other people, which would, if it were true, make the monogamous commitment something we wouldn't have to articulate wouldn't be a commitment you'd have to make. If that was just, yeah, I was in love with you, so I don't want to have sex with other people, we wouldn't even, monogamy wouldn't be a word. It would just be a thing that people did without having to be threatened with death, with stoning or execution or divorce to hew to. Anyway, I guess I'm sounding a little bit like I'm not very pro-monogamy right now and I'm trying to be pro-monogamy. I see the advantages and you don't lack for support. I'm sorry if anyone out there who listens to this show and here's me talk about monogamy or non-monogamy feels as if I am opposed. I'm not. When I talk about having realistic expectations, that's me trying to make sure that your monogamous relationship is strong and lasts. For example, you know, a lot of people who are in monogamous relationships worry that their partner might be attracted to someone else and get very upset, get very jealous. And my answer is always, yes, your partner is attracted to other people. If they've made a monogamous commitment, they're not going to act on that. But if you take just the fact that your partner looked at porn or looked at the barista as evidence that your relationship is falling apart, well, you're undermining your monogamous relationship. If you read my partner is attracted to someone else as my partner isn't in love with me anymore, you've destroyed your monogamous relationship. I haven't. If you allow for attraction to others, 
without that attraction being acted on and don't feel insecure about it, well, then your monogamous relationship is going to be a little bit more secure. It's going to be stronger. And me saying these things isn't like trying to talk everybody out of making a monogamous commitment or embracing non-monogamy. I'm trying to get people who want monogamy to be more realistic about what it is they want, what it is they're asking for, what it is they're getting – including, you know, as I have said a million times, if you're with somebody for 50 years and they cheated on you once, they were good at monogamy, not bad at monogamy. Adultery and infidelity, not excusing it, but it does happen. And if you want your monogamous relationship to really go the distance, you should have it in the back of your head that an infidelity, that kind of betrayal might be something that if you want the monogamous relationship to survive, you might have to forgive not me excusing cheating. CPOS, that's one of my little acronyms, cheating piece of shit. I think cheating is wrong in almost all circumstances, but not all. Anyway, I'm sorry if you haven't felt supported. If you need support for your monogamous lifestyle choice, you don't have to look hard for it. So I don't think you need my recommendations. Just go talk to a priest. All right, before we get to response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Diana Fleischman tweets, A 51-year-old woman on the Savage Lovecast fraught over whether she is using up her 33-year-old boyfriend's youth. In my opinion, older women with younger men worry about this more than older men with younger women, even though the latter, older men with younger women, are much more likely to cause harm, monopolizing a woman's fertile years. That's a good point, assuming a woman wants to have kids, which not all women do. Another really unfair aspect about this, an older man has an easier time finding a new partner than an older woman does. So the younger woman who ages with an older partner won't be able to find a new partner if that relationship goes to shit as easily as the young man who aged with an older woman would. Alicia KB tweets, Alicia KB tweets, what really struck me about the unfortunate disappearing act mentioned in the success story last week, the man who lost a double-headed dildo in his own ass during sex play with his partner, what really struck me was the fact that the guy's mind went to medical debt, moved to Canada, where anything can be removed from any orifice for absolutely free. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I used to say... Uh, every American needs to go to Europe and someone needs to break one of their legs so Americans can see what socialized medicine is really like and then maybe we can have socialized medicine here. But it's a much more attractive offer perhaps to say that every American should go to Canada and lose a sex toy in their ass and go see what socialized medicine is like for that reason. Instead, less traumatic, shorter recovery time, same takeaway. And finally, Kay Hammer 1212 tweets, for our lady of the balcony – on the most recent episode of the Savage Lovecast, man or woman jerking off in plain sight is in poor taste at best. If the cops don't get called, you're lucky. If they do, you got what was coming to you. You know, the thing about messing around where you might get caught, solo or in pairs or in groups, is that you might get caught. And if the possibility of getting caught is part of what makes that hot or exciting for you, you really can't complain when you get caught. I don't think people should wind up in prison or on sex offender registries, which some people have for having sex in public. Of course, bearing in mind that there is a big difference between people who enjoy sex in public where they hope that they maybe won't get caught or not get seen and people go out of their way aggressively to make other people feel uncomfortable or scared by pulling out their dicks on public transportation and having a wank or something like that. That is very different. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast and now listener response calls. 
Hi, Dan. I just finished listening to episode 776, and I wanted to thank you for pushing back on that woman using the word triggered and trauma to describe her discomfort or annoyance, I guess, at her boyfriend using Viagra after she had suggested it to him. It is a great thing that we as a society are becoming more accepting of trauma and that we are realizing that you don't need to be a combat veteran to suffer from PTSD. But I do worry that the ubiquity of the word trauma often invoked by people who, you know, may have had something bad happen to them, may have had something mildly inconvenient happen to them, is really devaluing what trauma and traumatized is. It's a really debilitating and scarring, long-lasting thing that has happened to people and you, like I said, you don't have to be a combat veteran, but it's not the same thing as like, oh my God, I had a really bad day at work and it was really traumatizing. And I've seen just people use trauma sprinkled in to basically be the same thing as like a bad thing happened to me and things may be really bad that have happened to you, but just because you had, you know, some discomfort or some sadness doesn't mean that you are now living with the lifelong implications of having been traumatized. Um, so again, thanks for pushing back against that and to be respectful of those who are traumatized or to not really belittle their experiences by bringing that term into everyday usage for something that, that definitely just wasn't trauma. To the woman of 51 dating a 33-year-old man, I'm now married three years and we have almost the same age difference as you. She is wonderful, brilliant, hot, supportive, and easily the best relationship I've ever had. It sounds like you are what this guy wants, so you definitely should not break up with him to give him the chance that he doesn't want to be with a younger woman. You don't need to worry that you're cheating him out of anything. I say nothing against younger women, but there are all kinds of advantages to being with someone a little bit more seasoned. Some people are embarrassed about this dynamic, but plenty of us are proud of it, and I'd recommend trying it to anyone that was considering it. Hi, this is a response call for the woman who called in on the last show because her husband had hams that had cream all over them and he wouldn't wash them. Dan, you and Lena were absolutely right. That was totally inconsiderate of him. And I wanted to add something that's a little bit more practical advice for her. My husband is a bicycle mechanic. He gets cuts, scrapes, bruises all over his hands. Sometimes his hands are really greasy. And he is really into making sure they're nice and clean, but sometimes they can be really rough or he just has a scratch that can't be zhuzhed up, for lack of a better word. And when situations like that come across, we have some really nice gloves. We have a few pair, a few boxes of nitrile gloves. They're super smooth and he can put on all of the salves and creams that keep his hands nice and put the gloves over them and then we can still play. The first time we did it, it was a little funny, but it actually turned into like a very sexy thing because the gloves make his fingers so smooth that it's a very, very sensual experience to be touched that way. Your caller definitely should talk to her husband about his attitude and why he was lying to her. But in the meantime, if she wants him to put his hands on her and they're not nice, get some nitrile gloves. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Hey, Madison, Wisconsin, you're about to get humped. Our 2021 lineup will be playing this Saturday, September 18th at the Barrymore. And don't forget, the new Hump's Greatest Hits, Volume 4, is streaming online until September 25th. 
And also remember the deadline for making a film for Hump 2022 is December 8th. And without you, we can't hump. So please get humping. Go to humpfilmfest.com for all the info you need. And if you want to stay up to date on Lovecast News, my Savage Love column, ticket giveaways, events for my new book, go to savage.love to sign up for my new newsletter. And be sure to check me out this Friday on Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Amanda Montel on Twitter at Amanda Montel. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week on installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.